Welcome to Alchemy Radio, the home of the open mind. Thank you for tuning in and hopefully you enjoy the show on a regular basis and I know I certainly enjoy bringing it to you, as does my producer Stevie. As regular listeners know, but I don't mind reminding you, we're currently free, completely non-profit and available on demand from alchemyradio.net and iTunes and our listenership is increasing every day along with the associated costs such as bandwidth. With that in mind, your help is always needed and appreciated. We rely on donations to keep the show in its current format and are very grateful for any help you can offer. There's no fixed cost on donations and even a small amount every month helps. So whatever you might be able to spare, thank you very much for your assistance. Our donate button is on the website, as is a brand new subscription button as well. We're on Twitter, at Alchemy Radio is the address there. We're also on Facebook, and get following and interacting with us. We appreciate and enjoy all your feedback, guest suggestions, and other input. So, on to the show. This week's guest is Hugh Newman. Hugh is an author, conference organiser, world explorer, tour host, and megalithomaniac. As an author, he has researched the indigo child phenomenon and published a book on the subject, his most recent book, Earth Grids, has been published by Wooden Books, and he's released numerous DVDs of his multimedia presentations as well. He has articles published all over the place, and as well as organising the Megalithomania conferences, he has spoken at events in the UK, Malta, France, Peru, Egypt, Bosnia, and North America, among others. He has also appeared on BBC TV, Sky Channel 200, Bosnian TV, and the History Channel in the last three seasons of Ancient Aliens. Overall, he's a man with a finger in many, many pies, and it's a great pleasure to have him on Alchemy Radio. Hugh, how are you? Good to talk to you. Uh, very well, thank you very much. I suppose before we delve into the meaty stuff, one of the questions that I ask most of our guests on the show here is, how did it all begin for you? How did you get from where you were to where you are now? Well, to become a certified megalithomaniac, it took quite a long route through various different subjects. One of the passions I had many years ago was the crop circles of England, um, going back 15 or you know, even 20 years, I think was the first one, 18 years was the first one I saw. And uh, obviously, a lot of people don't realise this is one of the most incredible, strange, modern phenomena, the most strange, the most interesting and uh, I knew some of them were real because th th there's a history of them going way back hundreds if not thousands of years so I got, I got drawn in to this megalithic arts and sciences and all the things I researched now th through the crop circles uh, because once you start getting your head into those you quickly realize um, that they contain geometry and measurement systems they're always on ley lines they're near ancient sites they're all in the vicinity of Avebury Stonehenge and places like that and it kind of drew me into the sacred landscape and that's how I became started to become this obsession with uh, megaliths and ancient sites so it was really really through that that was the the main sort of driving force that um, drew me into this strange world of ancient mysteries and how strange and fascinating it became when you were young I mean growing up or maybe in school was there any kind of a, an indication did you have any kind of leaning towards that that was a little bit less mainstream or was it more more or less in later life 
Uh, it, was, it was mainly a little bit in later life, but the, the, I had this quite strange story from my mum, which I'm happy to mention on the radio, I guess, um, is that when they were actually pregnant with me, my mum and dad, they used to go around in a camper van. And the time they were pregnant with me, when I was a couple of months before I was born, um, they were going around the West Country, Stonehenge, Avebury and all this stuff. And uh, they, they don't really know why they went there. But I remember once, well, I well my mum told me this, she was I don't remember this, obviously, um, is that I started kicking at a certain time when they were dry, trying to find somewhere to park up for the night. Mm. Um, and they pulled over in this random car park, didn't know where they were. Um, eventually, I stopped kicking, went back to sleep. And in the morning, they woke up and there was this big conical hill right behind them. And they parked up right next to Silbury Hill. Um, so there's a little extremely early indication of my megalithic passion uh, going way back then but it wasn't during my you know during my school years I got incredibly bored by learning history it was just basically the dinosaurs a load of stone age savages then the Romans and then the kings and queens so it's not really the most exciting subject when you're at school However, um, it was really like, like I say, the crop circles and it was the, the, the study of earth energies really opened my eyes to the more mystical side of history, uh, the more esoteric and the secret history of, um, of the ancient Britain and other sites around the world. So, um, so yeah, so the, you, you, some, you, know, you get drawn into it in strange ways, but once you're in it, you kind of, that's it for life, it seems. Well, you mentioned you're a certified megalithomaniac, and uh, I'm sure there is a cert for that, but... What made you decide to really take this seriously and that this was going to be your life passion and you were going to just go for this hell for leather? Because it has become an obsession, a healthy obsession in my book, but an obsession nonetheless. Yeah, no, for sure. It's, uh, it was actually, I met, uh, I worked with a guy called John Martineau, uh, who's a publisher and brilliant geometer. He was also into crop circles and megaliths and stuff like that. When I moved to Glastonbury um, about um, 10 or 12 years ago, um, but I was all, I was kind of studying it. I was reading up on it. I was writing articles about it before then. But then when we we decided to start the Megalithomania conferences, then it that's when it really kicked off. And I was organising talk spaces and lectures and like whole areas uh, like outdoor festivals for several years before that the big green gathering sunrise celebration other events and we had all these amazing speakers on megaliths and crop circles and ufos and all this amazing stuff but it's really start, when I started doing the megalithomania conference then it kind of clicked that there's there's a real kind of um, kind of almost like a movement of megalithomania mm. uh, people really want this they, they want to kind of have access to sites they don't want to be they don't want to feel like they just listen to academics they want to kind of feel a more antiquarian kind of vibe which is to do with just the love love of the ancient sites um, and a passion you don't have to have qualifications you don't have to have you know master's degrees in archaeology to, to appreciate it and research it and it's from that kind of angle um which really got me and it's really inspired by john michelle to be honest with you um who's you know a massive inspiration for me and many other people unfortunately he passed away um three or four years ago and he was he, he triggered the beginning of the conference and my kind of uh, seriousness about the subject tell us a little bit about john michelle because his name crops up on this show from time to time but we've never actually spoken about him in any kind of depth before John Michel was like a visionary author um, in the 1960s. He came out with the flying saucer vision, uh, questioning what UFOs really were. Were they light phenomena? Were they 
figments of the imagination or something else and why do they follow ley lines and then he kind of did this classic breakthrough book which opened up the door for a lot of other people which is the view over atlantis where he really questioned the ancient science and went into more mystical things uh, geometry the megalithic science of alexander tom uh, ley lines and this sort of enchantment of the landscape uh, and this whole kind of ancient philosophy kind of emerged from his writings and it really blew people's minds basically this is obviously before I was born but um, it really kind of opened the door for a lot of people and then he wrote some he wrote 30 or 35 classic books many of them 12 tribe nations he even wrote a book called megalithomania uh, which is wh where we took the name from for the conference and he encouraged us to do so he wanted us to use the name in fact uh, and he was a speaker at the first two or three conferences before he died so the legacy is kind of living on we we, we, we hope within the conference and and in some of the projects and the way we operate um thanks to people like john michelle um, there is so much going on, Hugh, at the moment. I mean, you guys are so active and you're uh, becoming more and more progressive, I think, in your approach as well. And having experienced one of the conferences, the most recent Origins conference, I have to say there's a big difference in the way you present your information from the way a lot of other people do. And what I mean by that, I, I mean it as a positive, in that there's a more relaxed air to your style of presentation and to a lot of the guys you're working with on a regular basis. And it's much easier for somebody who might be new to the information to become absorbed in it and to really feel that there's something, uh, so something good going on and something entertaining as well as being just hard data. I mean, there is all that the hard data is there in your work, but it's presented in an entertaining manner. And I was very, very struck by that. And it was something that, that really resonated with me after the origins conference is that the kind of feedback you are getting to the work that you're doing over the last couple of years and beyond or what kind of feedback do you generally get yeah no pretty much that's a good way of putting it actually i mean this is again this is like the antiquarian kind of uh, approach i think where it's to do with the passion for the sites the yeah. sort of love of these ancient sites and, and all, all related subjects that are often overlooked by academia uh, and i must admit i mean ac academia is accepting things like archaeoastronomy now and there's a lot of um a lot of science being and tests being done on earth energies and even on the alignment of sites ley lines and things like that so yeah we do kind of have that kind of angle i mean i certainly personally but i find that there's so much amazing information and sites out there i mean you, i mean often my presentations are just describing places i've visited and just the basic research that's been done on them you don't need to have you know in these lectures whatever you don't need to have a grand theory trying to prove a point often just showing people pictures and describing what happened and the sites and what's been discovered is mind-blowing enough uh, really at some of these sites there are around the world and often people don't get a chance to find out about them um, I mean it's the same in many different subjects the, I mean this research I've been doing on these giant skeletons in North America and other places it's the same you don't need to kind of try and prove a point that they, they were from a certain place this is the evidence and that's mind-blowing enough and I think that's that's the kind of approach um, that, that kind of needs to take place. We don't need to try and prove, you know, grand theories. Although, you know, that comes into it. A theory might develop, but I get I get frustrated sometimes with speakers and authors who just have a grand theory and just only put in the evidence that supports that particular theory and then miss out all the other stuff that contradicts it. Um, and so I think there's there's a, a certain approach which is a bit more relaxed, but you can pack a lot of information into one lecture and people are a bit gobsmacked by the end of it um, regardless. <laughs> Personally, I'm testament to that. I thought the Origins Conference was amazing. So 
I suppose the work that first drew your work to my attention was your book, The Psychic Children, Dolphins DNA and the Planetary Grid, and the work that you did on indigo children. And we will talk about Earth Grids, your most, most recent work, and lots more besides as the conversation progresses. But let's talk about DNA and the indigo children and what exactly indigo children are first. I think it's a good place to kind of start delving into the meteor aspects of our talk. Yeah, for sure. Now, I mean, the, re- the reason I kind of got into that, this was this was kind of bef- as I was getting into all this uh, more ancient mysteries stuff many years ago. Um, I was actually I was just kind of uh, had some friends and their kids, and and um, I kind of looked after the kids, babysat them sometimes, um, and I just noticed these kids were amazing. One one of them was like really intense, powerful warrior style, like five year old kid mm. who was master, really good at chess and things like this. And another one who was much more like a healer, intuitive, very uh, spiritually kind of intelligent. And I kind of realized there's something going on. So I did a bit of research on it. And like, yeah, there was this phenomena of these indigo kids. And this was all, you know, 10, oh, sorry, 15 years ago when I, when I was first started researching this. And uh, eventually I went to this conference in Hawaii, the Psychic Children Speaks to the World Conference, organized by James Twyman and his, um, and his group. And I met some some more of these kids, and I was completely stunned um, by what was going on. They just to me, they're just like old souls. They're like old masters from various, you know, Native American to better traditions who are reincarnating into these kind of young bodies um, with all this high knowledge uh, from an extremely early age. Um, some of them just have extremely um, amazing gifts, really, um, that they, you know, to do with all the different psychic and telekinetic abilities, but also the intuitive side and the um, and the you know, clairvoyant side as well. And so it just seems like there's it seemed like there's a, there's been a whole pro- process over the last maybe de- couple of decades now, where a lot of very a lot of these indigo kids or these psychic children are coming through and they're, they're being born and they're coming in and the, and it could be because you know that has to happen now mm-hmm. uh, because there needs to be a kind of consciousness wake-up call for humanity because the, the nature of reality with all the governments and destruction and corruption and things like that is just people are over it it's not interested anymore and these kids are, are, are so pure they're like totally they can't be corrupted their integrity is very very strong and hopefully this will be a kind of um you know a shift in consciousness of the planet and uh, if enough of them are coming through being born and everything then eventually uh, we'll reach that level of consciousness that humans really should be at rather than be controlled uh, manipulated and um you know sort of having this sort of almost like a black sheet over the whole world <laughs> um so hopefully things will change and maybe they're the answer maybe they're going to come through and get into places of power um and um and, and make some changes that are most needed and people have been speaking about indigo children from the 1970s i think perhaps even before that but uh, from from the research i've done it seems to be from about the 1970s so is it limited to children? Do these kids seem to lose their special abilities or do they carry them on into later life? Well, I think that just depends on their environment and their you know, parents and schooling and things like that and their peer groups and stuff like that. So it, it varies. Um, um, it, it just varies because you know, often, you know, often you know, many of us, if, if not all of us, have these potential abilities. Mm. Uh, we we do have them. It, it's real. It's not you know. It's it, it's there. It's just a case of if they're developed and seen at the right time. Whereas a lot most these really special, interesting kids like have them strong. You know, they're really really 
powerful people, old souls who've been through it all and know what's what, you know, from within a couple of years of being born, they know what's going on kind of thing. So, yeah, um, yeah, it really, uh, really depends on their environment and the way they're brought up, I think, because often you can have it, you can have it um, sort of um, taken out of you as you grow up and you're conditioned a certain way. Um, but if it's if it's worked with and developed, I think um, it could be a life changing and a you know a culture changing experience. And I find it interesting as well because a lot of people say there's a thin line between genius and madness and. There's so much talk at the moment about the likes of autism and uh, whether there's a link to vaccines and all these new so-called diseases such as attention deficit disorder, all this kind of thing. And a lot of signs, hard signs, are the medical establishment would say that, hang on a minute, this is absolute nonsense. Indigo children, it's just an excuse that parents use if their child is autistic or on the autistic spectrum in a way perhaps, or it's just a way for... uh, for them to cover up some kind of learning disability. But anybody who speaks anecdotally about indigo children and interaction that they've had with them say that there's something much, much more powerful at work, that, that that's really just a kind of a brushing under the rug from an agenda-led industry. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I agree exactly with what you said, to be honest with you. Um, it, it's like It's almost like the schools and society as it is cannot doesn't know what to do with these these kids who've got these abilities and and sometimes you know they may not show these what we class as psychic abilities and often ADHD is a is a big problem but I think that's because um, it's the way they're being taught and uh, I think you know I think they they've got to keep up with the, the kids rather than try and control the kids feed them riddling to slow them down into the way they are being taught uh, the syllabus of schools and stuff like that so I think it's a time for a change you, know, you get these you know excellent schools like Steiner schools for instance um, who actually t- you know are aware of this and they they take that into account and they allow the creative side which is often what's needed with ADHD kids uh, to come forth and so you know it really it really depends again on the environment and I think these Steiner schools and other schools are really the key to that and obviously conscious parenting as well yes absolutely and in your book The Psychic Children you link it to dolphins and of course everybody loves dolphins but why are dolphins so key to the link between psychic children and earth energies and DNA and that kind of thing well when I was in Hawaii I met uh, Grandma Chandra who's who's one of the sort of um, Sort of one of the main kind of uh, psychic kids, I guess, indigo kids who has sort of um, shamanic kind of. She works in the shamanic realm as well. She's she claims, um, as to some of the other kids, that they actually are in communicado with dolphins and whales, and there's a direct link um, between some of these kids, and, and that they can communicate constantly. It's almost like a whole other world under the under the oceans. And uh, apparently, this is what I was told, that often when uh, you know aliens or UFOs or you know, extraterrestrials come and visit Earth, they don't, they're looking for the most intelligent species on Earth. So they also often go straight to the dolphins or the whales mm. uh, and bypass the humans. Um, because obviously the oceans take up more space than the land does where the humans exist on so um, so there's a lot to be said for that but, but they claim that they work you know in the same way that uh, the psychic kids and other spiritual groups that work on on land that is also happening with the dolphins and the whales in the sea now this is just what I've heard I've got no evidence of this or anything like that but I find that particularly kind of fascinating um, 
that whole concept and, and it kind of makes sense you know it's, it kind of makes sense to me it's, it's logical why not um you know why not i mean you know they're, they're very smart animals people uh, smart smart um dolphins and whales are very smart so people know uh, that that's the case so why not why can't these kids communicate with them and work with them in various ways do you think it's the case also, uh, before we move on to a different topic, you, do you think it's the case that there are an increasing number of these children being born and that it is linked to a possible kind of expanding of consciousness in a collective sense on Earth? Yeah, it's, it's like the 100 monkey syndrome, I guess. Um, and hopefully, you know, that, you know that, that will happen. I think it's, you know, we are, we've got to look at it like we are kind of one you know, mind as well, the human race. So it's just up to everyone individually whether they take that path, whether whether they're even introduced to it. I mean, some people in some countries are born into situations where they're just trying to survive constantly. They can't even worry about how spiritual they're being or like um, how conscious they're being about certain things. Mm. They're just surviving, and this is, you know, a lot of people seem to overlook that. Um, but certainly, I think you know, there, there's going to come a point. A lot of people were hoping it would be the whole 2012 uh, solstice thing. Uh, maybe maybe something has shifted around that time. I mean, who knows? Um, and it's just a case of like, um, you know, individual responsibility is where it's all at, in my opinion, um, about being responsible for your actions, for the way you think, the way you act, the way you treat people. And I think that kind of responsibility, you know, needs to be kind of you know, everyone needs to do it. You know, if there's going to be any kind of shift, and then they have to set an example. You can't just teach. You can't try and teach kids like you've got to do it this way, and then they see their parents doing it a different way. You know, you have to set the example, and I think that's that's obviously um, the key to it. And I don't, I don't think it, it may not be a natural process. It might be. I, I sort of suggest in the book it might be mm. that this could just be happening naturally. But I think there's a role. We all have a role to play. We all, you know, create our own destiny. Uh, we create our own kind of fate <laughs> so so we need to make sure it's going to happen as well I couldn't agree more and I think consciousness really comes into our destiny our fate I used to always struggle with the idea or the cliche or whatever you want to call it the old adage that you make your own luck and I, throughout my life I never understood what that was and over the last couple of years it kind of became clear to me in that if you set yourself up in terms of consciousness in a particular way opportunities do become available to you when you would least expect them and if you're observant of coincidences or apparent coincidences and any of that kind of energetic stuff that's going on in the background all the time whether we realize it or not we do suddenly realize that hang on a minute we are all connected so if i act in a positive way towards somebody else well then it will come back to me in an almost karmic fashion um, in, at some point in the future or in some way and I really agree with what you're saying there with regard to energies and how we, we should take personal responsibility I don't think the onus is on Hugh Newman to do all the research and to figure out what's going on in the world and I think we all have to do it and we will reach the snowball effect as some people call it and I think we're quite close to it and hopefully we are but central to all of this Hugh and you've done huge work on it um, most especially with your book Earth Grids there is a kind of a grid that most of us are not aware of, and we're certainly never thought about this when we look at geography or history or anything like that in school. There is a grid that links all these sacred sites all over the world. I mean, everybody's heard of Stonehenge and the pyramids and places in all over the world, Mexico and now Bosnia and all over the place. But they seem to be just isolated tourist traps. But that's really not the case at all. These things were built for a reason, and they do appear to be linked. Tell us a bit about your work on that. 
Yeah, uh, well, the book Earth Grids, The Secret Patterns of Gaia's Sacred Sites. Um, again, John Martineau was instrumental in um, making that happen. Obviously, I've done all the research. I was doing lectures and, um, and working a lot, a lot of the mathematics and the geometries around the planet. Um, and, uh, yeah, we eventually put that book together. Actually, John Martineau designed this world grid program, which we used for some of the research. But, yeah, there's certainly something going on with these ancient sites because there are literally millions of megalithic sites, ancient sites, pyramids, mounds, earthworks, loads of different things all over the world. I mean, every country is littered with them. There's a lot going on. Even North America, there's Korea, everywhere has them. Uh, it's just a case of knowing where they are. And uh, a lot of them obviously have been destroyed now. Um, which is very unfortunate and something we do, we do try and sort of promote and help protect any potentially sites uh, under threat. But if you look, start looking at so even in the local landscape, you know, people can start with that. They can look, just map all your ancient sites in your local landscape. Get an OS map, get accurate maps. Just put them all together and just see if there's any patterns there. Because often you'll just find patterns that are kind of, that, that might be random, might be chance, and that, that that does happen. And I've seen researchers come out and get crazy about all these patterns. Some of them don't make sense. But it's when you start seeing similar number systems, mm -hmm. similar angles, and similar geometries that are all based on um, harmonic numbers or, um, you know, like the old canon canonical numbers, um, then that's when you take notice. You know, that's when I take notice is when you're looking at certain number systems, certain measurement systems, certain systems of geometry. Then you can, then you know there's something maybe going on there uh, and they are connected. And this can be applied globally as well. Um, you know, the relationship and spatial distances between sites um, can be quite interesting <laughs> once you start looking and it makes you wonder how they did it because they not only were they working with latitude which is relatively easy to do compared to longitude which yeah. is incredibly difficult to do um, it wasn't even sussed out until the marine chronometer came in thanks to John Harrison a few hundred years ago but somehow they were doing that in ancient times because you know we have we have to question um, you know then what how they were doing that and were they marking um, certain places they, that they mapped with ancient sites. Was that one of their primary reasons for placing sites all around the world? Was it part of a sort of global geodetic mapping system? Um, and that could be the case. And this is why there's a, a, some kind of order to it, the more you look. But it could also have other purposes as well. Um, because we know that there's thousands of years old kind of ancient maps, the Pyrrhus Res map, the Orontius Finicus map from the 1500s, which were compiled from many ancient, much more ancient maps mm. that even show the outline of Antarctica, so they must be 10,000 years old, etc., etc. But there's there's other elements to it as well, because you can clearly, you know, when you start looking at the sites themselves, you find the same numbers and the same measurement systems and geometries as you do on a global scale. And so you can see that there's like a sort of macrocosm, microcosm thing going on between sites and the relationship between other sites. And it gets it's quite confusing to try and describe it on, on um, just with audio or radio. Yeah. But, you know, the, when you start looking at the pictures and start experimenting, um, you can have lots of revelations. Uh, and you can certainly do that nowadays, thanks to like uh, programs like Google Earth um, and, other, and other apps you can even get on your iPhone and, and stuff like that. But there's, there's other elements to it as well, because natural spheres... Uh, spin, especially which is like the Earth and all the planets in the solar system, actually kind of have a kind of innate um, geometry. They all every every sphere contains within it energetically um, 
the, the five platonic solids and a combination of the platonic solids, the Archimedean solids. Yeah. Uh, and they all their points, like if you've got like say um, a tetrahedron, like a, like a small pyramid, a three-sided pyramid, in a sphere, the points will touch the surface um, at 19.5 degrees uh, above or below the equator, depending on which way you put it in. Mm. Um, and th and often you get energy anomalies on the Earth's surface at 19.5 degrees, and so you have to question: Are there like these sort of massive energetic geometries, spherical platonic solid geometries within the planet, and that where where they all, their points touch the surface, there's stuff going on, and this seems to be the case. There's evidence of that with the tetrahedron. There's evidence of that with the icosahedron. Um, thanks to the, the early 1970s research of Ivan Sanderson, the Bermuda Triangle, Hawaii, and other places all fit onto it, the Devil's Triangle off Japan and things like this. Mm. And so there, there are things going on, not just from an ancient mapping system, but also from an energetic system. Um, and then we have, we have to question, did, did they kind of join the sites up with these energy lines and like stimulate the sites, you know, charge them in a certain way? possibly with sound or acoustics and things like this and then the energy lines would naturally coming up from the earth would be manipulated so there was like this energy system around the planet which could have even be used for energy for like powering certain things I and mean, bruce cathy one of the foremost researchers uh, from new zealand he claimed that they were actually powering ufos and they were going along these straight line paths between ancient sites in a grid system over the planet so um there's quite a lot to it really <laughs> just a, there's, there's a quick summary uh, but if um but there's there are other aspects obviously to it as well well it's a really good summary as well because convention would have us believe that uh, well that basically civilizations in the past were completely disconnected from one another. They couldn't possibly have known what was going on, for example, in Africa versus what was going on in Australia. However, when we delve a little bit deeper, and we don't have to go that deep to realise it, we discover that indigenous cultures were very much au fait with what, with what was happening on the far side of the world, whether they were in direct contact or not. They did have a kind of a common knowledge that would have had to have been acquired in some way that we currently don't use. They didn't have televisions, they didn't have telephones, they didn't have any of that stuff and that so-called technology that we have now. But they still knew stuff that, to use our own paradigm at the minute, they shouldn't have known, but they did. So rather than overlook that, I think you've, you've gone into a lot of depth and actually explored, you've thrown out the paradigm and you've said, right, let's accept that there is something global at work here and look into it in some detail. And I think that's the most important thing for anybody approaching this information for the first time. Just no matter what the convention or the paradigm is, set it aside for a minute, even sometimes treat the information as if it's fiction and just look at it as a story. And quite often these revelations appear as you described when you started linking ley lines, for example, or different energetic points or different sacred sites on, on the grid. So. When you started linking some of the bigger sites, shall we say, because all people are familiar with them, what did you notice? I mean, what, were the, uh, what was the frequency of the, what seemed to be anomalies initially, but turned into patterns? I mean, was it a common thing or did you really have to go digging? No, I mean, you could, as long as you can go to these sites yourself and have a look, you can just see things. I mean, it's, it's really that simple. Um, 
that I mean, obviously, there's really obvious ones like stone circles, for instance. We have you know over a thousand stone circles in Britain, yeah. um, and all over this country. Uh, but there are stone circles all over the world. The biggest stone circle in the world, for example, is in Morocco. Um, there's also Gebekli Tepe is stone circles. There's stone circles in Africa. There's there was some in Australia. They're, they're everywhere, and there's even evidence of some in Brazil. Um, and there's one even at Silvestani in Peru. So you know that why would you build stone circles there has to be a kind of you know is it just by chance that they would all do the same thing but the pattern doesn't stop with that you look at pyramids you find pyramid structures at many different places around the world that you know proper pyramids like the ones in Egypt Mexico um, and other places that are built from the ground up there's obviously lots of controversy about ones like the Bosnian pyramids which look more like a shaped hill of some sort yeah. um, but the ones built up are very similar um, not only dimensions but they have, they have similar style they have similar layout orientation um, and they even have you know the same construction methods in, in some cases stone carving you, you look at relief carving as an example I just wrote this article about this for a couple of um, magazines um, and you look at Gebekli Tepe for instance I mean the, it's the subject like, it's hard to get off it's, it's so interesting and important that there are these incredible relief carvings of these animals these snakes these foxes these lizards and things like this and I couldn't believe it when I went to Gebekli Tepe last year because straight away I thought I've seen these before I've seen this exact style it's almost the same artist at these two or three sites in Peru and Bolivia almost exactly the same I, I couldn't believe it and I thought this how can this be how could you you know if they're supposed to be thousands of years apart thousands of miles away from each other on different sides of the world how can they be the same and this is something people like obviously Graham Hancock who was at our Origins Conference have been you know commenting on for several years now but you go to these sites and you, and you can see evidence of that yourself and all these academics who try to slam uh, Graham Hancock and others obviously haven't been to these sites because you can see them with your own eyes and so you can't help but take account that there was a global culture and we know they were they were, they were sailing around the world there's evidence of that there's evidence of you know um, navigation all over the world I mean I think one brilliant example that's completely overlooked by you know all the, everyone really is the fact that right next to the Great Pyramid at Giza you know the last remaining wonder of the world there's three huge wooden boats <laughs> like, like almost like um, you know they could carry about 40 people they could they could they were huge um you know perfectly preserved wooden boats that were deliberately buried next to the great pyramid with these huge megalithic blocks covering it up and they reconstructed they actually broke it down when they buried it originally and then they kind of eventually when they rebuilt it they realized this could sail anywhere around the world and so even in ancient egypt the pyramid builders they were sailing around the world and there's they're just trying to tell us that, you know, by leaving them right next to the pyramids. And obviously, the pyramid builders were sailing around the world. So, and, and uh, you know, you can't help but notice the similarities between sites. Like in Egypt, you have these polygonal walls, these beautiful, kind of irregular shaped, massive megalithic blocks. Actually, the two smaller pyramids on the Giza Plateau are faced with granite polygonal walls. People don't realize that either. Yeah which is exactly the same as you get in Peru, which is exactly the same as you get on the west coast of Italy, which is the same as you get in some parts of Saudi Arabia. It, it goes on and on and on. You can't help but notice these similarities just by simply looking. 
then when you, you get into the earth grids ang angle of research on it, we start looking at the location of sites um, in relation to one another. Patterns do often pop up. Sometimes they don't, but sometimes they do. So there's a constant, you know, as sites are being discovered, um, there's more and more potential kind of, you know, discoveries that follow on from that that are still yet to be discovered. And you mentioned that there are loads of different theories as to what the Earth grids are for and wh why we have these similarities all over the world. I mean, anything from flight paths for extraterrestrials to anti-gravity, all these different theories. Is there any that really kind of pops out at you or that you get that feeling, particularly when you're at the site? Because, I mean, you've been all around the world so many times and physically at these sites. So you have a different perspective than most of the rest of us who haven't managed to do that. And you, you can... You can feel things as well as just, I mean, look at information and read it in a book. So is there anything that seems to ring true for you based on even just a hunch or when looking at empirical evidence as well? Well, I mean, some sites, they're high energy sites. And, you know, you know, if you just spend you know, a little bit of time there, you can, you can feel that. You know. Some have kind of been so... Um, re-destroyed, rebuilt, this, that, and the other. I mean, a lot of the sites I went to in the Boyne Valley in Ireland last year mm. um, have, have been kind of almost, kind of almost like you know, leveled to the ground and rebuilt again. Yeah. But they still retain their energy. I mean, Nowth, for instance, um, still has a high energy about it. There's something about Nowth mm. for me personally. I don't know why. It's something about it. I've had dreams about Nowth um, that kind of inspired me to go and visit it a few years ago. Um, but some sites. Have a have a high energy which you can't you can't see you know there's no evidence of it but you know I've been to like for example I went to this Olmec site up on the Gulf Coast of Mexico a place called La Benta mm -hmm. and many of the stones have been moved from La Benta the original site it's like a pyramid kind of site in the jungle virtually and moved to this park to keep them from destruction and even when they've been moved there was this one a huge altar stone had all these serpents carved on it which I could me and my friend I was he felt it as well we could feel this energy kind of pulsing out of it and we were like whoa this is incredible and we could we were just standing you could kind of walk into the energy field and walk back out of it it, it was you know and we were not high we were, there's nothing you know we were not you know in a, in an old state in any way we were clear-headed you know visiting these sites and it, it blew our mind and this has happened at many other sites I've been to as well not all of them not sites you would expect things to happen but it does happen and i think this direct experience is you know and reporting on that is actually one of the most important aspects um of understanding these sites uh, and it's one thing we encourage you know people who go to sites to give us tell us their experiences and you can build up this data about it um but also there's now science uh, which can test the energies at sites uh, and this has been some excellent research over the last uh, decade or so, thanks to people like John Burke, who wrote the brilliant book, Seed of Knowledge, Stone of Plenty, mm. with co-author Katch Halberg. And that, he actually used to actually work in the, the scientific research of crop cycles. He applied his science, scientific um, techniques to megalithic sites, mound sites, and got the same, got incredible results that these were high energy sites and there's something you know that is one of the reasons they were built where they are because often they're on a magnetic anomaly naturally or they're on a 
conductivity discontinuity where two types of geology meet and you have high charge of water going through underground you have energy currents meeting and clashing creating this kind of vortex so this is a genuine thing and it's not just new age nonsense this is a genuine um, uh, research area now that, that people can, can start to take seriously and I think that's one of the overlooked aspects in archaeology um, and academia which is something where we encourage that at megalithomania. We're not just about big stones and about archaeology. No way. We want to kind of look at all these different aspects uh, to see if we can sort of get a holistic picture of what the ancients were really up to. Well, I find it very interesting that you mentioned Nauth as well because I had an experience there in the last two years personally. And everybody's heard of Newgrange in Ireland, and that's kind of the big, the big tourist attraction in that area. And not so many people have heard of Nauth and Douth, which are two energy sites very, very close to Newgrange. And I was there with my brother Stevie, who's producer of this show, and he had been there many times before, and he said, look, this place is great, we have to get there. And we went, and it was my first time, criminally, it was my first time when it's only about two hours' drive from my home here in Ireland. And... I remember I had a cold, a very heavy cold, a head cold, and I was coughing and spluttering for, for the week prior to it, and things had been getting worse and worse and worse. And I remember as we were there at the site, we were kind of just surveying things, and for anybody who's, who hasn't been there, you can kind of look out at the landscape for miles and miles around. It was a very clear day, and it was a great view. And as we were there, we could feel, both of us, this kind of this energy that we didn't have before. Within an hour of leaving the site, that, that cold, and people can laugh at me and they can say what they like, but that cold that I had, that flu, the flu-like symptoms, which were getting worse that day, had completely and utterly gone. And to this day, I haven't had a snuffle ever since. Now, I'm not saying that anything incredible definitely happened to me. All I'm doing is recounting my experience, and it is associated with Nauth. And personally speaking, I think it had something to do with it. And the energy, or the, the energy that I felt on that site has resonated with me ever since. When I think of it, I get a slight kind of a, again, people can say it's placebo or it's imagined or whatever, but I get this tingling, this almost like my hair standing on end when I think of Nauth or when somebody mentions it. And it's, uh, the, the place absolutely fascinates me. And I've had one or two of these experiences, one in Mexico as well, over the years. And I can totally relate to what it is you speak of. I mean, people need to feel these sites as well as just talk and hear about them because that's very, very important. And as you said, a lot of the research that goes on tends to overlook that, and particularly science. I, I totally agree with you. I mean, um, I, I'm fascinated by your your story. Actually, I, you know, that's a, that's a really good bit of data there. Just uh, it's fascinating because similar thing happened to me. Um, I just like to add this in here. Uh, when I was in Egypt, um, I was I got very sick in Egypt. I was there for the whole December 2012 solstice thing with uh, Kerry Casti and, and, and a group of people, mm. and we. Um, I got very sick on the Nile cruise. I got serious food poisoning. I thought I was going to die. I couldn't eat anything for days. It wouldn't go away. I was sick. I was nauseous, puking, etc., etc. And we had this opportunity to go into the Great Pyramid and go to the subterranean chamber, which I've never been to before. Right. I thought, oh, I'm so sick. I don't even know if I can walk or stay awake. It's first thing in the morning. So I, I thought, right, I'm going to, to pull myself together, be a proper megalithomaniac here. And so I just I got myself together. We did it. I somehow climbed down into this, uh, this really long sort of diagonal passage into the subterranean chamber and a similar thing happened to me that you had as well I, I felt completely immediately healed I, I was not I, I was not sick I was not nauseous 
and I, it was my whole sickness had disappeared completely. And I was like, what is going on here? Yeah. And I even, you know, said it to my camera, my video camera while I was there just to, you know, to give a bit of, you know, feedback, what, you know, so I got, I got it recorded. And the whole time I was down there, it was about 40 minutes or something like that, uh, I just felt completely fine. And I thought, this is weird. Is this like coincidence? Did, did I just happen to get better right now as soon as I went into the, to the lower chamber, the subterranean chamber? And then, but when I came back out, I climbed back out and got out just at the top of the chamber, still inside the pyramid, the sickness and the nausea came back. And I was like, oh, what is going on here? And, and it, was, it was palpable. And, and it's almost like I felt I had to get sick to have that experience to find that out directly. And again, this comes back to the whole direct experience. Um, so I question, you know, I've really questioned that and I really haven't got any clear answers about what could have done that. Whether it was literally the shape of the pyramid, the whole pyramid power thing where the energies were compressed down into the subterranean chamber and that would be a neutralizing energy and that would just temporarily put you into this sort of neutralized healed state. Mm. It could have been you're so deep in the earth and you're away from any frequencies up on the surface. Um, and so you're not getting affected by them. And I've heard that people who go um, caving and go into deep caves, they have a similar kind of thing where they feel completely pure and healed. And so it makes you question the nature of disease. It might, is it like a vibrational thing on the surface of the planet, if that is the case? And so that really blew my mind. So it does suggest that many of these sites, you know, to me, it was like, well, this is like a healing space yeah. you know as well as you know we know that the great pyramid may have had multiple other purposes including technological energetic purposes but that kind of really got me and you know i still haven't really worked out exactly what happened to this day but again it's another bit of direct data that you know like myself and yourself have actually experienced it's absolutely fascinating and i'm sure more will unravel as we continue our journeys Speaking of journeys, Gobekli Tepe is somewhere that you have journeyed to and we spoke at length to Robert Chalk last week about it. We had a fascinating conversation about it. What light can you shed and what perspective have you got? Because this site, I mean, everybody's talking about it. It seems to be the single most important site for a variety of reasons in the world at the moment from in an, an archaeological sense and beyond. So what's your experience of Gobekli Tepe, Hugh? Well, Gobekli Tepe uh, in southeast Turkey is... Uh, it's like it's a game changer, as Graham Hancock pointed out when we, we went with him there last September. Um, I mean, we got, we're going back there in May because you know we we're, we're, that is the ultimate kind of megalithic <laughs> site at the moment to see in the world. Yeah. Uh, and it's not only the, one of the most beautiful and interesting, intricate carvings and these pillars and everything. It's also extremely old. It's probably the oldest known, sophisticated megalithic site on the planet. Uh, that's actually been carbon dated to that era, to the Mesolithic kind of era, going back, you know, 12, 13, 14,000 years even. And so it's extremely ancient. It shouldn't be there. It shouldn't, it shouldn't exist in our current paradigm of history. It just shouldn't be there. Mm. And so that's what's so compelling about it. Um, it's a series of stone circles with these carved T-shaped pillars with these beautiful relief carvings on them. Some of them are huge, th high 3D reliefs of these sort of, you know, strange creatures. There's many serpents, and it's very similar to what we find in Peru. So that's why we've actually invited Brian Forrester, who's an expert in Peru and Bolivia, to actually come over to Gobekli Tepe and all the sites in Turkey with us um, in late May and early June. We're doing a tour there with, with Andrew Collins because, you know, it's like that thing, it's the direct experience thing. It's like, you know, we got we kind of 
and we do take groups to these sites because there's a demand for it. There just is a demand. And um, we always want to kind of find out other people's experience there, like the experience I had in the, uh, in the subterranean chamber, the experience you had at Nowth. Mm. I want it so, so in a way, it's almost like a res, you know, a research expedition every time we go there. Uh, as as everywhere else we go on tours and, and, and the groups we take um, and so there is something about that site which the fact is they covered it up makes it even more interesting because they were trying to hide it almost yeah. and so imagine imagine what else has been deliberately covered up like literally had earth put over it and shaped into a hill so you can't even uh, see it it only got uh, found by chance really um, and it was almost like a time capsule so we have to kind of you know take that into consideration um, when you're looking at sites like this but to me, I mean, there's, there's, I, I found we found a whole bunch of energy currents there. We had a few dowsers with us and geomancers there, and we kind of found some energy lines. We found this magnetic area, and so we know that it has the classic traits of like a sophisticated ancient site where they were working with the invisible energies, as well as the archaeology and the intricate stone carving is so amazing. Um, I do recommend people visit there, and um, obviously people are welcome to come along with us long. Absolutely, and we will uh, we'll talk about the tours towards the end of the conversation as well. You've been doing a lot of travelling. You're just back from Australia and Tonga. What was going on out there? More discoveries? Yeah, I mean, Australia is very interesting, actually. Uh, we met up with Steve Strong and Evan Strong, um, and um, we had a, a long conversation with Brett Green. And, and there's, some, there's some good researchers out there, and there's some interesting sites being discovered up north in Queensland, well, sort of central north in Queensland. We have the Gympie Pyramid, which is actually... And probably a natural earth kind of uh, mound type thing uh, with these strange stone walling around them and all these unusual Egyptian and Phoenician looking artifacts are being found there and it was a gold mining area so it does seem like it was used by different cultures over the millennia in near Byron Bay which is the cool kind of funky town similar to Glastonbury but in Australia yeah. uh, a place called near, near Mullumbimby is this um, almost like a, a double stone circle site with quite small stones mind you uh, almost like two stone circles with, with crosses like a medicine wheel with an avenue between them and also a, a man-made mound there as well which Steve Strong and it took me to go and see and it's on private land and it's not open to the public or anything um, but we managed to get a chance to go and see it and film it and experience it and um, and then there's these Gosford hieroglyphs down down near Sydney about an hour north of Sydney where in this random rocky outcrop in the middle of nowhere there's 300 be you know pretty well carved Egyptian and uh, ancient hieroglyphs <laughs> and so it does suggest you know either they're really good fakes or there was an Egyptian connection in Australia um, Tonga obviously which is a five hour flight from Sydney yeah. going directly east into the middle of the Pacific literally in the middle of nowhere um, has incredible megalithic technologies there it has this huge trilithon uh, similar to what you have at Stonehenge but much bigger um, it has these pyramid platforms with these massive megalithic walls all around them and it has um, uh, some standing stones there um, and a tradition that suggests that could have been the kind of primary kind of uh, capital of ancient Lemuria or Mu because um, even the, the ancient capital of Tonga is called Mua M-U apostrophe A uh, which suggests uh, that ancient connection it's also known 
that Tonga and all the different islands of the Pacific were, they were very sophisticated navigators using the stars to navigate. And so the more you look around those islands, the more you find megalithic sites. And so it's almost like that was like part of the great survey, the great grid survey of ancient times. So wherever you go, you can find interesting stuff, trust me. So too, I suppose, the alien question. A lot of people will discount so much information because they don't want to talk about aliens and or more people will be on the other end of the scale where everything has to be linked to an extraterrestrial source what's your position on the use for the energy grid in the past because there obviously was some kind of use for it and the building of all these different sites and um, megaliths absolutely everywhere do you think it's extraterrestrial in source or do you think it might have something a little bit closer to home as the explanation ultimately well, I generally think it is closer to home. I do genuinely think humans could have easily done all this. Um, you know, because we, you know, if we can, the technology we can do today, then we have the same brain capacity we've always had mm. going back tens of thousands of years. So it's quite plausible uh, all this could be done by humans. Uh, and I don't doubt that. And I, I kind of uh, sort of strongly support that um, idea. But <laughs> a big but here, you, you really some sites you go to like the Beckley Tepe's one is like you just can't it's difficult to, to comprehend it and, and to like deal with it yeah. it's like how did that happen how could they do that you look at the Great Pyramid in Egypt it's like how could they even do that mm. is that even possible to do that it's like it's almost like an impossible building um, and there's I've, I've talked to some architects who just say that they wouldn't even they couldn't even do that today but not because they don't have the technologies because it's just too much of a job yeah. you know it would take too long it'd be too many man hours you probably mess it up and the intricacy of some of these sites is so amazing it's such big stones such a lot of work uh, it's hard to comprehend uh, what was going on so um, you could put it down to aliens I mean I've been on that ancient aliens tv show several times um but i always kind of suggest it may you know may have been ancient aliens but it could quite plausibly have been humans ancient humans as well and, and so it kind of you we have to kind of keep you know bring it back down to earth because it is totally plausible that we could do all that it's just they've kind of like almost like left us um a mystery i think deliberately because they could do it they thought well you know those people in the future let's freak them out let's build this um and so there's a little bit of that going i'm sure it's a bit of fun and games um as well as um you know uh, high technology and i think you touched on something very important there and something pertinent that is i think brushed under the rug a lot because People from thousands of years ago did have the same brain capacity. It's not that they were more stupid than us. It's not that they had less intellect, that they didn't have a sense of humor or anything like that. They were of the same species. And to be honest, looking at the way the world is now, they were probably far more intelligent rather than the other way around. But there does seem to be this kind of tendency. And I, I mean, nowhere more than school when I was growing up, when I think back now with hindsight, was this rammed down my throat. I mean, now is just the pinnacle of what humanity can be. It can only go forward. It can't possibly go backwards. And anything in the past we can kind of take with a pinch of salt or look back on and chuckle and you know kind of condescend in a way and you touched on that there and I, I really really agree with you I think it's a very important point mm. oh no no for sure and I think this is this is also one of the problems with the way um, uh, e evolutionists look at history and you know this is one of the issues that comes up uh, when we find these elongated skulls we find these giant skeletons we find this 
you know, places like a Beckley Tepe that just shouldn't be there like 13,000 years ago or whatever. Um, and so, you know, it's all brushed under the carpet because it doesn't fit in with the modern paradigm of the way we see history. Mm. Where we're at, like you say, we're at the peak of civilization, which is, which is nonsense. You know, I think obviously things go in cycles and there's so much evidence coming out and so much has been suppressed with these giant skeletons, these long heads, uh, you know, the stone carving technology of Quebec Tepe and other places that it really needs a shake up. And I think, you know, it's one of the roles that megalithomania kind of has in this is that we you know, we, we just, you know, like everyone, we're just looking for the truth. We're not trying to, you know, we're not trying to kind of, we haven't got a grand theory. We're trying to force on people. We're just saying, look, take a look at this this doesn't make sense wow you know so it's just um you know i think that approach is like we talked about earlier is very important but obviously what we're taught in schools you know to, to, to change everything you know to change the whole history syllabus and rewrite the history books and the encyclopedias and all this you know la di da di da and uh, all these historians having their kind of whole um work all shaken up and you know it's going to take a long time for things to change, even though things are being discovered now. And I think that's um, why the antiquarian and megalithomaniac approach is probably, you know, a nicer way of doing it. Yeah, I think so. And you mentioned skeletons there as well and giants. Let's talk about that just for a few minutes because you've done quite extensive work on that end of things now as well. Yeah, I mean, I've really got, you know, it's really to do with the megaliths, this actually, because in England and, and Ireland as well, in fact, um, you have many, many sites, megalithic sites and mound sites that are attributed, that were built by the giants, often in one night. You know, we know that there's there's so many reports, you can't deny, that, deny it anymore. Problem is, you know, Smithsonian Institution were involved in all this and they kind of disappeared. Most of these skeletons got involved. It wasn't, it didn't fit in with the evolution theory. It didn't fit in with their manifest destiny kind of, you know, agenda, which early Americans had, especially those involved in the Smithsonian and the government, which was to look at all previous races, savages, and subhuman, almost like animals, so they could take over their land uh, and claim ownership of the land and uh, resources and things like this. But, you know, obviously they're not subhuman. It's completely racist and ridiculous. Mm. Um, and But even before the Native Americans, there seemed to be a race of giants who were kind of, you know, ruling the whole of North America, literally the whole lands of North America and probably Central America and Canada as well. Um, and that was kind of like a prime summit. Mean, I've, I've researched stuff in California, Catalina Island, uh, all the way down to Florida, all the Ohio Midwest, Mound Culture area, even New England as well, Florida. Everywhere you go, you can find these reports and you can find these ancient sites. I mean, people don't realize there's like over 100,000 recorded earthwork mounds and earthen pyramids in America. They don't realize the whole of New England has hundreds, if not a thousand or more, megalithic chambers, standing stones, and stone circles. And so, you know, and most people in America don't even know about any of this. And, and that's fine, but that's just the way they're being brought up. It's not their fault, you know, they're not stupid or anything like that. It's yeah. just, again, it's similar to what we've been talking about. There's like, you know, people just don't get taught these kind of things and, and they just dismiss it as some Native American thing, you know, and uh, you know, they're not interested. But actually, there's a lot more to it than meets the eye. Um, but unfortunately, there's not a lot of um, direct evidence of these skulls and skeletons because not only the Smithsonian sort of disappeared them, there's also... Um, the Native American uh, Graves um, Repatriation Act um, came in in early 1990s, 
which demanded all the bones that are on display, whoever, whatever they were, get reburied and taken away. And so anything that was available to see is now being removed by them as well. So there's unfortunately like two levels of disappearance of the evidence going on there. So it's a tough nut to crack, but um, people like Jim Vieira and Ross Hamilton and myself have been doing our best to kind of uncover what we can. It's interesting always when I hear about giants because when we're children, we're, we hear so much about giants in so-called fiction. And then, of course, you hear in the Bible about uh, David and Goliath and all this kind of stuff. But giants seem to be ever-present in all kind of fables and tales from indigenous cultures all around the world. They're completely ubiquitous. And mm. it's only in the last kind of couple of hundred years that they seem to have been disappeared and that this idea is scoffed at. I mean, so many texts and writings from the Middle Ages and even beyond quite openly talk about these giant people and... Um, not so much skeletons, but people who roamed the earth, if you want to use that term. And all of a sudden, there seemed to be a concerted effort to just, yeah, well, as you say, brush it under the carpet or the rug and forget about it. And we just can't talk about that anymore. Well, yeah, I agree. I mean, that's, that's the thing. Anything that's kind of suppressed or brushed under the rug or kept quiet is the stuff to research. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think, you know, you can, most of us agree on that. That's the most interesting stuff. Um, and so that's why it's compelling people. You know, it's, it's a big subject at the moment, this Giants thing. It's, it's huge. It, well, no pun intended. But it's like, you know, it's, uh, it's a big story and like it's, it's coming out now. The same kind of it's the same kind of problem with these elongated skulls they've been finding, which obviously Brian Forrester and David Childress have done some excellent research on those all around the world. Uh, it's the same thing; they're brushed under the carpet, they're suppressed. There's no no one's talking about them. But you know, it, this is why it takes alternative, independent researchers who have a passion for it, the antiquarian way. To bring this all out into the open, who, who we don't have any, you know, we, we're not going to be kind of slammed by our, our acad academic peers if we step out of line from the, you know, the trusted paradigm. So um, I think it's quite, um, you know, I think that it takes, you know, courage to kind of go ahead and, and push through with this, but it has to be done. And, you know, and I think anyone in there, you could be doing it, anyone can be doing it. You go into your local records office, you just, you know, subscribe to like news, old newspaper kind of, you can even do that on websites now and scroll through all the old newspapers and, and search keywords, search for giants and skeletons and double rows of teeth. You'll find stuff. I mean, I've, there's stuff I've found personally, there's stuff uh, even in Glastonbury I, I've read about, the stuff, you know, back in my hometown near Cambridge in Cherry Hinton up on the Gog Magog Hills. Yeah. There were giant skeletons found up there in the early 1800s. So the list goes on. It, you know, again, it's like the megalithic sites, like the mountain. You, can, you just got you can go local and you, you can probably find something. Um, so I encourage people to do that, to, um, you know, see what we can, you know, accumulate um, between us. And speaking of going local, you're quite active when it comes to, I suppose, preservation of some of these sites because they do come under threat from time to time for nefarious or otherwise i mean maybe it's just ignorance on the part of a lot of establishments and councils that kind of thing we were speaking off air about stonehenge and what's happening there with regard to potential building Yes, I mean, I, I was there yesterday morning for the summer sol uh, sorry, the spring equinox, um, to you know witness the the sunrise that happened behind some clouds somewhere, and um, and I've, you know I didn't see a sunrise, but I was there. There's a whole bunch of druids there, and these druids are very active in this kind of realm. And a, a good friend of mine who's an archaeologist, astronomer, Simon Banton, he works at Stonehenge, so he's got the inside sort of story. And basically, the summer solstice alignment where the sun rises and you view it from Stonehenge right at the back, on the horizon, 
there's a gap called I think it's called the Solstice Gap, and there's an area and, and, and nothing. There's a whole military base over there, Lark Hill Military Base, uh, MOD, Ministry of Defence, and they, they put these plans out on the government website. They're going to build all these houses for all the people there, right across <laughs> where the sun rises when you're viewing it from Stonehenge. Uh, I think it was just ignorance. I don't think it was anything sinister. Uh, and but there's been a sort of you know quiet campaign to go to actually do something about this. Um, I've, I mean, I've just posted, uh, if anyone's interested, I've just posted a video up on our Megalithomania UK um, YouTube channel, mm. and they can check out, see it on megalithomania.co.uk as well, um, just about, you know, just filming the ceremony, but also talking to Simon and um, Arthur Pendragon, who's like a representative of the Druids, about this issue. Uh, and people can actually, you know, check it out themselves. Um, they can go to... Uh, gov.co.uk I think um, and actually you know search um, you know search for the Salisbury plan sorry the Salisbury plane master plan so if you go to gov.gov.uk and then go to the Salisbury plane master plan uh, they can kind of have a look and you can send in comments uh, and you can make phone calls and harass them to make sure this doesn't happen and it closes on April the 1st so we really have to kind of um, you know get on the case now and what does the future hold then for you Hugh both in terms of your travelling your trips the conferences and the research that you're doing uh, well, we've got quite a few things going on this year. We're having a break from the conference this year. We will be doing Origins Conference again in November in London. Uh, that's definitely going to be happening. Um, we've got a few tours lined up. Uh, the next one we're doing is to Gobekli Tepe and many other amazing sites all around Turkey. There's crazy underground tunnels and all this other stuff uh, going on down there. Uh, we're going to be doing a 11 or 12 day trip starting on May the 26th with Andrew Collins and Brian Forrester. So that's um, people can just check that out on the website. We're doing tours around uh, sacred ancient megalithic Wales uh, in June and we're doing a whole trip down the St Michael line in England plus private access to Stonehenge in July. Um, and then later in the year, we're going to be doing uh, another trip to Turkey because the, the demand is quite high. Yep. Um, and also to Petra and Jordan. And um, and then we head off to Italy in September. There's lots of megalithic sites, Etruscan and Pelasgian, polygonal walls. That's all in September. And our annual pilgrimage to Peru and Bolivia with Brian yeah. Forrester and Freddie Silva um, in late October and November. Fantastic. quite a lot going on <laughs> absolutely action-packed it sounds brilliant yeah we've got a lot going on and, and it really is you know we really just have a passion for it uh, we have we work with really cool tour companies who are really into all this kind of stuff um and we just you know pe people you know it's, it's a way for people to go to the sites with you know people who know what you know know about the sites we know all the secret little areas we know where the earth energies are mm. we do a bit of dowsing uh, and it's just about direct experience and to have a sort of group, you know, focus. And, and often we, you know, people make discoveries who actually just come on the tour. So it can, it can be quite a lot of fun as well. I mean, I, I just thoroughly enjoy it. And uh, most people who come on the tour do too. And if I had a few quid in my back pocket, which I don't, but if I did and I decided, right, I'm going to pick one 
and it doesn't matter which one, what would you recommend of them all? What, for an absolute beginner, let's say somebody is hearing you speak for the very first time here today on Alchemy, and they decide, right, going to go on one of these trips, what would you recommend for them? Well, blimey, that's a, that's a question and a half, isn't it? It really, it really depends on what you want, I mean, what you're into, because, you know, some people have a passion for Gebekli Tepe, others have a passion for seeing, who haven't been to England, I mean, we're going to see all the major megalithic sites in England on this summer tour in July, it's, mm. and go and follow these earth energy lines, so it's going to be quite a journey, that one. It really depends on your passion, and we just, you know, you know people, uh, I think it's a case of, come on all of them, uh, eventually, uh, or just, you know, but Peru and Bolivia always stun me every time I go there. It's incredible. Um, so I find that that's a good one. But again, people just look at megalithomania.co.uk and just check out our tours page. They can um, have, a, have a good look through. And we've got videos, we've got information, and people have uh, got reviews people have done so people can kind of check them out for themselves. And Hugh, I think it'd be great to have you back on a little bit later in the year to talk about everything that is happening in your world because there is so much. I mean, literally, we could speak here for 10 hours and I certainly wouldn't get bored and I know the listeners wouldn't either. You might, but uh, we certainly wouldn't. So it would be great to have you back on the show. It's been a huge pleasure and it's an area of special interest for me and for Stevie as well, who, uh, who turned me on to your work. So thank you for joining me on Alchemy Radio. It's been great. It's been great. You, got, you, you really know what you're talking about. I really appreciate um, your work. Much obliged. Hugh Newman, I have the power, you have the power, we have the power. Thank you for joining me on Alchemy. Alchemy Radio. EMP from the mother and son Tore the digital down Don't know the age of the innocent ones The indigo children The indigo children come When the indigo children come When the indigo children come Children
I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Alchemy Radio. Remember, we rely on donations to keep the show in its current free and advertising-free format and are extremely grateful for all the help you can offer. We put no fixed costs on your donations and every little bit helps. So, for example, if you could spare even the price of a bar of chocolate every month, this will go a long way towards keeping us afloat. Our donate and subscribe buttons are on the website and your support and assistance is hugely appreciated. And as always, a massive thank you to everybody who has donated over the last couple of weeks. We genuinely couldn't do it without you. Our next guest is Daniel Unterbrink, and he'll be talking about Judas of Nazareth. We'll be discussing the life of Jesus, some of the myths that surrounded him, and the many people named around him in the Gospels and the Bible as well. So it promises to be a fascinating chat, and one that's very topical for Easter. Until then, I have the power, you have the power, we have the power. Alchemy Radio. Alchemy Radio. Analyze. Are you tuned in? Are you tuned in? Are you tuned in? Are you tuned in?